So welcome to another show. Today's guest is Terry Tucker, who is an author of the book Sustainable Excellence. So welcome to the show, Terry. Javon, thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Same same here. So if you just want to talk to people a little bit about the book, um, what it's about and the inspiration behind it, first and foremost. Sure. So the, the book, as you mentioned, calls Sustainable Excellence, the 10 principles to leading your uncommon an extraordinary life. And it was really a book born out of two conversations I had. I used to be a high school basketball coach. And one of the conversations involved the player that I had coached who had moved to the area of the United States where my wife and I live with her fiance. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was excited that she was living close and I could watch her find and live her purpose. She got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. So that was one conversation. And the other one was a young man in college who reached out to me on social media and asked me what I thought were the most important things that he should learn not just to be successful in his job or in business, but to be really successful in life. And I didn't want to give him that, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not, not that those aren't important. Those are absolutely important. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper with him. So I spent some time, eventually kind of had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. And part of my life for the last 11 years has been dealing with cancer. And, and I had my leg amputated in 2020. And while I was healing from that amputation, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. Well, I love the the two the conversations you mentioned. I think that the purpose one is really something that resonates with probably a lot of people listening at the, uh, to this conversation because, as individuals, we always have that sense of well, what do, what am I? Who do who am I going to live into? And I think you you correctly pointed out it's what are your gifts and what are you passionate about because I think those two things together put you in the right direction. Um, and the second one was about the principles of success, wasn't it? The 10 principles. Do you want to go into those 10 principles? Because I'd be interested to, to see what those 10 principles are and how they sort of relate to success on, on the whole. Sure, I, I'd be I'd be happy to. I'm, I'm pulling out the book here. To, to they, are, they are not in any order, but I want to make sure I get them all. Uh, so principle number one is enjoy your life. Okay. Principle number two, and, and principle number two really resonates with me. And I think it resonates because I've done it probably more times than I care to admit in my life. And it's this, most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's good. So, so the first one, enjoy your life. So that's, yeah. you've got to have a life that you want to live. Is that basically exactly. what Yeah. The second one is looks to me like it's it's instead of thinking about all the things that can go wrong, look at what could go right and have a more optimistic mind. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, number three, you were born to 
to live an uncommon and extraordinary life. I think people settle a lot of times in life for a life that's comfortable, that's this easy. And that may not necessarily be the life that you were destined to be born with. But a lot of people just kind of get to a point, I think, where they're like, oh, okay, I'm good. I, you know, I, I'm comfortable here. But comfort doesn't make you grow. Love that. Because everyone loves these stories, don't they, about rags to riches, you know, a guy who started this business, failed and and, and then did something else and moved around. But then with their own life, they're happy just to get a nine to five and stick with that same job indefinitely. And it's, as you said, you are the main protagonist or main character in your own story. Um, how do you want the story to go? Do you want it to be interesting or do you want it to be flat, boring and and and, and secure, uh, for want of a better phrase? Absolutely. That, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head with that. Um, number four, and I think this is important, and I don't think a lot of people do this, is always remain curious and ask questions. Love it. You know, I think a lot of people just kind of like, yeah, okay, you know, I heard a 10-second soundbite on, you know, Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it was, and, and that's the way it is. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. The person spoke for two hours, and you're taking a 10-second soundbite and saying, well, that's the way it are. So I am... I think it's important to remain curious and to be like, is that really the way it is? Or was there more to that? Or is there just a, a bigger thing here that I'm missing, but that 10 second soundbite sounded good. So I'm going to go with it. I, I love the uh, asking questions uh, because I'm a, a real advocate for that. I'm actually writing my own book at the moment about asking yourself deep questions. Where do I want to be in five, three to five years? What would be my ideal career? if money was an issue, all these sorts of things. And I think that school breeds it, breeds it out of us in some respects, because if we ask questions, we feel stupid because we're putting our hand up in the class and it's the, the social side that maybe we didn't understand it. And also it's the questioning of authority, isn't it? You shouldn't necessarily question the narrative. And I think that when people come out of school, they are still in that same mind frame of, I shouldn't really be asking questions. Whereas if you look at a kid, someone under the age of seven, let's say, there, where, what's this? What's this? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? How do I do this? Why is this as as it is? And it's something that I think we get it bred out of us. So it's great that you've 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 used that as a success principle because I think that's massive. Um, if we don't ask the right questions, we won't get the right answers. Yeah, you're right. I, I remember when I bought my first house, I, I was out planting a, a, a shrub, a bush, and my my next door neighbor, who was like three years old, kid came over. And it was constantly, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm planting a bush. Why? Well, because I want to improve the, you know, the way the front of the house looks. Why? You know, I mean, she went on like five times with why, 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 why? And, you know, I I got to a point where I was, I was starting to get irritated. And it was like, why are you getting irritated at her? She's three years old. She has nothing in her brain that, you know, that she can pull from that says, oh, he, he's doing it because of this. She, all she's doing is trying to educate herself, you know, yeah. and trying to remain curious. And and I'm like, why? don't get mad at her. She's just doing what a three-year-old kid is supposed yeah. to do. So yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, number five, you are the person that you're looking to become. So even if you're not that person right now, you are that person. And I know that sounds kind of, you know, like we're talking around in circles, but I, I, for me, it was, you know, I, I always felt that my purpose in life was to be in law enforcement. I was a police officer for a number of years. 
but I I, I kind of got there in a roundabout way. It wasn't a direct route, but I always felt, I mean, I've had a number of jobs in my life, but if you ask me what I did for a career, I'd tell you I was a police officer, even though I'd had a number of jobs in my life. So I think you are the person you're looking to become, even if you haven't gotten to that point yet. Yeah, it's like with the, the shrub you mentioned, you know, you, you can plant the shrub as a seed and, you know, whether it looks like a, a, a different plant early on, it'll always grow to be the plant that it was meant to be. And I think that that's what we do in life. We, we meander around and we have good instincts or, or, or insights or feelings that say this is the right path to go on and this maybe isn't the right path. And after time, we become more like who we who we should be, as you've rightly said. So, so that's great. Um, number six. Uh, number six, put your God and your family before everything else. Now, I, I have a very strong faith life, so you know that that's important to me. I, I realize people don't, other people don't, and that's fine. But I think the other part of that is your family, you know, and and that may not be your you know mom, dad, brother, sister family. That could be you know a much wider family. But those are those are the people in your inner circle. Those are the people that. In, in theory, would support you, would make you better, would make you smarter, would make you, you know, have better character and all those kind of things. Who are those people? And make sure you support them as well. Love it. I think that family, family, and as you said, God or spirituality is definitely something that we need. Um, because coming back to your questions point earlier, a lot of the times we have the answers within us and we just need to sit down, pray or meditate and ask those questions to get direction. So, so yeah, absolutely with you on that one. Um, number seven, I think we're on now. Yeah. Seven, be part of something that's bigger than yourself. Uh, you know, I, I, you can't tell this from looking at me, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and I played college basketball. I, I went to college actually on a scholarship here in the United States. And I started playing team sports when I was like nine years old and played all the way up until I graduated from college. And I think one of the things that, at least for me, team sports, and I think it, it can be whatever team you're on, whether you know it's your family, your colleagues, you're in a band, whatever it ends up being in your life. One of the things that team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera, and if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. Yeah, it's it's like the example you gave with the the girl again with the shrubs. The first question we have to do is why? Why comes before how, who, what, when, and where? Because we have to know why we are doing something. And with the football or life, for example, why do we want to leave such a legacy? Why are we in a part of this team? What are we trying? Like, why do we want to achieve this goal? And I think that, as you said, if you've got a higher purpose or like with your book, for example, why did you want to write that book? It's to deliver a message, to give insight to people who are listening. OK, that's why I want to do it. How do I go about doing that? OK, well, I need to think of a title and think of the principles. And um, when am I going to do it? I'll probably do it an hour a night. Um, where? In my bedroom or in, in the office, etc. So, so, yeah, I definitely think that um, the the wider vision as, as you put it is is important to bring out the best in ourselves because if we don't really feel that it's worth anything we probably won't act in our full potential will we i agree absolutely 
And and I, you know, I did that with the book. I, you know, people were suggesting that I write the book. And I was like, I, I, yeah, I'm not an author. I'm not, you know, you I really kind of was sort of pushing them off. And I, yeah, there, there's sort of, there's no joke here in the United States. It says, when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. So <laughs> God has never said, you know, hey, you should write a book. <laughs> but I think what God does is put people in our path that over and over and over make a suggestion. And it's up to us, you know, do, do you want to do it? Okay, fine, do it. If you don't want to do it, that's fine too. I think that's where, you know, in faith or religion, free will comes in where you have the choice to decide whether you want to want to do it or not. But enough people were making that suggestion with me and I was kind of putting it off. And eventually I got to the point where, well, maybe I don't, may not pay attention to this and listen to it and, and see where it takes me. Love it. I'm I'm a believer that um, we have both free free will and determinism. Like there's obviously the argument of well, is it deterministic? Is it free will? But it's like what you said. You've been told so many times that you should be writing this book. They're trying to someone's trying to get a message to you to do this thing, and then it's your as you said your decision to say. I've had this message quite a lot. It's probably worth my 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 while doing this as opposed to saying no. Um, so, you know, w- was that determinism that you were meant to write that book? And as I said, all of these other parts are a part of that. You know, you don't know. Um, and that's part of life. So, so, um, exactly. Next one is what? We're on eight or nine? Um, yeah, eight. And this one, you know, I, I, I really kind of toyed with putting this in. and, and I, But I just felt it's important, especially for younger people. And, and the principle is this. Fail often especially when you're young, you know, and, and I don't think, you know, people are like fail. Why would you want to fail? I think because you will learn, you yeah. know, and people kind of going back to the mindset, you know, yeah, yeah. I want to start that business, but Oh, wait a minute. What, if I fail, what will people think about me? Or do I have enough information or knowledge or, you know, resources to be able to do this? That's thinking with your fears and your insecurities. That's not thinking with, you know, hey, this would be a good thing. And, and whenever I speak in person, I especially to a group of young people, I'll always tell them if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because yeah. at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Love it. I, I, I... I think with with regret, regret of not doing something is always worse. And that's because of the lack of clarity of what could have happened. Oh, what if it did work? What if this happened after that? Whereas if you fail and, and, and fuck up, for want of a better word, you know exactly what happened and you can move on. But it's like the uh, the boxing analogy. You know, excuse me, I've been punched in the face and you've been punched in the face a lot less than a professional boxer. But they are better than us because they've had to fail that many times in order to be successful. And you also mentioned the information piece um, where, you know, have I got an information to make a decision? There's a famous story. I don't know if it was a king or a general of some sort. And he had all of his sort of advisors in the room and they were giving him information about taking a left path or a right path. And after a little while, he, he decided to take the right path. And a kid came up to him. It's a little bit like your, your story with the shrub and said, well, why did you pick that path? And he said, well, they've been spouting out this information for quite some time now. I've got a feeling it's going to take a lot longer for me to have all the information. It will be faster for me to go down one of the paths 
and see if it's the right one. Because either I pick right and it's the right path and I continue to go down, or I go down halfway down the path, turn back, realise that was definitely, definitely the wrong one and go down the other path. He says that's going to be faster than getting all the information, which is impossible anyway. And I think that's a great story to say sometimes we need to act in faith as opposed to waiting for all possible information and the, the right time, because there is no such thing in my book. Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and I, you, you mentioned boxing and I, I, Mike Tyson was the heavyweight champion of the world for a while. And he had, he had a great quote. He said, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth, you know, and then you've got to figure out, is that, is that the right plan? You know, I got hit in the mouth. I got knocked down. Is, is Should I still be going down this route or do I need to step back and say, Okay, I learned something from getting hit in the mouth. Do I need to to change and and you know maybe go in this direction, kind of like the story that you just told? Yeah, perfect. Um, last one then, I think we're on. Or we're on um, nine now. Number actually number nine first. Um, yeah. And this is pretty self-explanatory, but I learned this when I was a hostage negotiator. Listen more than you talk. You know, there's a reason we have two ears and one mouth, and, and I, I I think listening. And I'm not talking about listening to respond. I'm talking about listening to understand. And, and I don't think in society today, we're doing a very good job of listening to understand. It's, can I yell over you? I mean, if you're screaming at me and I'm screaming at you, neither one of us can hear what, what the other person's saying. I think we need to spend a little bit more time. You know, I, I may still not agree with you, but help understand where you're coming from. And now all of a sudden we're 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 functioning like human beings. We're 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 connecting and things like that. We're just not screaming at each other. I love it. So there's a difference, isn't there, between listening and hearing. To hear something is just to it goes in one ear and out the other. To listen is actually to 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 understand, try and empathize and take that information on board to change your decisions moving forward. Uh so number Absolutely. final one, number 10. Number 10, uh, love is the most important word in any language. Love it. But I don't think there's much else to say there. Is there? I think that sums it up. No, there really isn't. You know, <laughs> and, and, and again, I, I don't think we're, we're not talking about romantic love. We're talking about, you know, really kind of love what you what you do, what you are, you know, and things like that. I mean, romantic love is part of that but it, it's not just about you know having a romantic relationship it's much deeper than than that and and i think in love encompasses everything i remember hearing that when i was a a kid i i had a big uh fascination with a basketball coach here at ucla in the united states by the name of john wooden and wooden was giving a an interview to a sports reporter and the reporter asked him what's the most important thing you want your players to know or to understand and I was literally, I mean, I was a kid. I was like 12 years old. I had a pad of paper and a pencil. And I'm like, all right, coach, give me some good X's and O's that I can use, you know, in basketball. And Wooden said, I want my players to understand the importance of love. You know, love what you do, love yourself, love your family, love your fellow man, love your creator. And I was like, no, no, give me something really I can use. And I didn't realize as a kid just how important that lesson really was. It's, it's something though that when you're given lessons sometimes you don't realize it was a lesson until later on because you, at that point like people would say oh well if you could go back in time what would you change and it's like well it's very different difficult to have your current mind and current perspective looking back at how you would have thought 20 30 years ago 
it's a completely different thing. So maybe at that point, your decisions were correct based on the information you had available, but now you would change things. So, you know, definitely uh, I'm a strong believer in, in, in that, that the lessons we we receive, sometimes we yeah. don't realise the lessons till later on and realise actually was the best thing that ever happened to me. So exactly. And, and I, don't, I don't remember who it was. One of the stoic philosophers said, you know, no man ever steps in the same river yeah. a second time. Yeah. You know, they're not the same man and it's not the same river. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that phrase. Love it. Look, I, I'm, yeah. I'm a, um, quite a big reader of stoicism. So, so yeah, it's, it's something along the lines of when a man walks into a river and walks back out, neither the man nor the river is the same. Yeah. So, so talk to me. You mentioned a couple of times about being a policeman and a hostage negotiator. That's an for for a lot of people. That's a very interesting career and something that you know you see it on films. People look for the, the the CSI and the crime stuff. Can you talk a bit about your your career as being a hostage negotiator from both ends of the spectrum, from the really good, interesting stuff to the maybe not so good stuff? Because every job, you know, doesn't matter how good it is, there's always going to be the negatives. You know, boxer, you know, I want to be the world champion boxer, but you're going to go through pain and being sick and going running every day. So can you talk a little bit about that that spectrum, uh, please, Terry? Sure, I'll I'll, I'll start with the negative because it's my, it it was really kind of interesting. They're they're always... SWAT call-ups always seem to come in threes. And, and I don't know if that's because, you know, somebody would see it on the news and then think, oh, I'm going to, you know, do that. I, I think that's that's one of the things that motivates school shooters is, you know, they see somebody, oh, they, they, they shot up a school. Look, they're getting all this publicity. Well, I'm going to do that because I want that kind of publicity as well. But SWAT call-ups always seem to come in threes. And my wife would tell you, that the, the biggest downside of being a negotiator was she would always prepare a great meal for our family on Sundays. And almost invariably in the middle of that meal, my pager, you know, it's been a while since I've done this. We carried pagers at the time. My pager would go off and I would have to leave, you know, to go to a lot, to go to, to negotiate with somebody. And, and you, you can imagine I mean, you, you, I love my wife, but the frustration on her, I've worked all day for this nice meal and then you've got to leave in the middle of it. What was very, that, that was for me, probably the worst part of it. Um, the best part of it is what I learned, you know, about if you think about a police officer, 99% of what we did was face to face with another individual, whether it was pulling you over to give you a ticket for speeding or answering a radio run for a fight. It was face to face and you could take visual clues. You know, if I'm talking to you and, and you're kind of like looking around, maybe you're going to run. Maybe you're looking to escape or, you know, if you're standing there talking to me and you're balling up your fists, maybe you want to fight me. And I can see that and I can take visual clues and I can do what's appropriate. I could sit you down. I could handcuff you. I could put you in my car, whatever was appropriate for why I was there. And we have this formula in SWAT uh, as, as negotiators, and I'm going to try to remember it. I think it was 738 and 55. And what those numbers stood for was how we communicated. So 7% of the message is communicated through what I say. 38% of it is communicated through my tone of voice. And then 55% of it is communicated through my body language and my facial expressions. So 
as negotiators, we were not with that person. So 55% of the message is something we didn't have. I, I didn't have the visual clue if I said something to an individual, you know, and they, they were like, oh, you know, what an idiot. I can't believe he's, you know, they would roll their eyes or whatever they would do. So we, we didn't have that. So we had to get good at figuring things out based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. So that was that was one big thing that I learned. Another thing I learned is the importance of trust. You're trying to develop a relationship with somebody that you're negotiating with, just like you would with a parent or a child or a husband and a wife or, or a boss and subordinate. You're trying to develop a relationship with somebody you have you don't you don't know them. And you're trying to do it as quickly as possible to get them out safely. And one of the things people would always say to us, hey, I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say to them, well, you do come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something that was more positive and that. So that was another thing. We never lied because there was a very good chance a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, we would be back negotiating with that same person. And if they felt we lied to them at any point in time, then we had no credibility. That trust was eroded and we were not able you know, to continue to negotiate with them. So that was a big thing. Um, the importance of what we used to call tactical empathy, how understand where you're coming from. I'm not going to tell you I agree with you, but help me to understand why we're in the situation, what what got us there. And you, you and I were talking earlier about questions to ask. And one of the things that we would do was we would ask how and what questions. We tried to stay away from why questions because why questions sound accusatory. Why did you do that? Ooh, wait a minute, is he accusing me of something? So we would try to use how and what questions to get to the same information but when I'm using a how or a what question, what you don't realize as the person I'm negotiating with is that I'm engaging you to help me get you out safely. So how how do you think we're gonna how do you think we can do this? Well, now all of a sudden you're involved in this. You're you're engaged in, in getting yourself out, and you don't even realize that. That was another big thing. And then the last thing I'll talk about is silence. So we would we would let you talk for a while. And then we would pair it back or repeat back to you maybe the last three words you said or whatever the most important point was, and then we would be quiet. And people don't like silence. We want to fill that. We don't like that, that void. And that would get people, it would do two things. Number one, it would get people talking again. And number two, by me parroting back or repeating back to you what you said, it would help you to understand, oh, yeah, he gets me. You know, he just told me what I said. He understands that's building trust, which hopefully leads to getting you out safely. Yeah, it's like one of the 48 laws of power, isn't it, from Robert Greene, always say less than necessary. Um, but when you are negotiating, so I've sort of gathered the, the type of skills that you were developing and the, and the type of skills you were using. But I don't know whether you can talk about this or not. What to, What type of crimes and situations were you negotiating and what were the stakes that you were negotiating on um as it were a lot of times it was you know people that barricaded themselves you know they 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 committed some crime whatever that was 
and then they, you know, they ran into a house or they ran home and they barricaded themselves. They may have had a hostage. They may have had a family member or, you know, somebody they grabbed. A lot of times they didn't. They were just a barricaded suspect. So, you know, they were in a house. They were barricaded. Most of the time they had a gun, you know, and sometimes they would shoot at us and stuff like that. I had a really good friend of mine who got hit in a helmet with a bullet that somebody just randomly shot out of a of a house that we were negotiating with. We would go after homicide suspects, murder suspects. You know, somebody would call, you know, anonymously and say, hey, you know, the guy you're looking for for this murder, he's holed up in this apartment building, you know, here. So we would go surround the apartment building and then try to negotiate that person out. And about 90% of the time, we were very good at what we did. About 90% of the time, we would get the person out successfully. But about 10% of the time, you know, especially if you were a homicide suspect and you knew you did it and they had the evidence for you and you knew you were going to prison for the rest of your life, people decided to end their lives. And while that was always tragic, I never lost any sleep over that. And I don't mean to sound callous, but I worked with great people. I had great training and I knew I did everything I possibly could to try to get that person out safely. But at the end of the day, it was really their decision on whether or not they came out or not. And like I said, some people are like, you know what? I'm not going to prison for the rest of my life. I'm just gonna end my life right now. And they would do that. And like I said, always a shame because there's always somebody, I don't care how bad you are. I don't care how, how much of a goof you are or whatever. Somebody somewhere loves you. You know, whether it's a parent or, you know, an old girlfriend or, or a boyfriend, whatever it is, somebody somewhere loves you. And, and we always kind of kept that in mind. That's a, I don't care how bad you are. I don't care how many people you killed. We, we realize you're a human being and we're trying to get you out safely. But again, it's your decision on how this ends. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it's, a, it's a bad thing, isn't it, when, when people do go down that route? And as you said, there is whether it's if people love you or there's something, a skill that you've got to show the world, there's something good in everyone. doesn't matter how bad yeah. the person seems on the face of it. There's also always something they can learn. So you also battled through through cancer as well. Was that during your time in the police or, or afterwards? Uh, actually, I got cancer in 2012, which was after I had gotten out of law enforcement. I had I'd gotten out of it. I, I had a school security consulting business that I was working on. And I also coached, I, I mentioned, you know, the impetus, one of the stories for the book was a player that I had coached in high school. So I was kind of doing both of those jobs. I was coaching girls high school basketball at the same time. So how, how did you sort of motivate yourself through, throughout that? Because obviously it's a quite a, a big ordeal and a life-changing experience. How did you keep yourself in a good positive marketing? Because I know we talked previously on the truth of motivation. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, you know, I am I am 11 years into this cancer fight. I still have tumors in my lungs that I get treated for every three weeks. And I, I really think, you know, it kind of goes back to something I, I said earlier that, you know, one of the big things I learned from team sports was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. And right now I am on a clinical trial drug. It's a drug that's not available to the public. You know, I'm kind of one of many people around the world that are that are sort of the guinea pigs. How, how is this going to work? And is it, you know, does it work on, on cancer? And you know, what are the side effects? And can we can we move forward with it? 
And it's probably not going to save my life. It's been keeping my tumors, what my doctor calls stable. They're still there, you know, but they haven't gone anywhere else. And, you know, they haven't gotten any bigger. So that's that's the good side of it. But like I said, it's probably not going to save my life. But the way I look at it is maybe it's going to save the life of somebody five years from now, 10 years from now, that then I'll never meet, that I'll never know based on all the data that the doctors are gleaning, you know, from my blood tests and my scans and things like that. So part of this, you know, part of the way I keep myself motivated is to realize that this is bigger than, than, than me. This is something bigger than myself and it has benefit or I'm hoping it has benefit to maybe other people down the road. It's a good way to look at it, isn't it? That even if you're not going to benefit you would like to be part of the solution for future benefit. I think that's a good, really good mentality to have because for for, for a lot of people out there who have got a, a, a sort of loser's mindset, it's like, what's in it for me? You know, what am I getting out of this? And it's such a, a bad attitude that doesn't bring you success like, over the long term, really, I, I don't feel. Um, You've also got a motivational blog company, haven't you? Or, or you do motivational stuff. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Because I think that you actually come from a really good place as well to to be talking about motivation. Yeah, I, I started uh, back in 2019. I started a motivational blog called Motivational Check. And the 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 title or the, the theme of it, I, I really got when I was in the police academy and I was learning to be a police officer and our defensive tactics instructor uh, used to, that was a phrase he gave us, motivational check. That if, you know, I mean, we did some pretty crazy things. I mean, we ran marathons. We would we would run to these big fountains outside of, you know, office buildings or apartment buildings that, you know, had like four or five inches of water in them. And we would do push-ups and sit-ups and, you know, all kinds of things in this water. It, it was, you know, and then we would run back. We would be soaking wet, you know, we run back to the academy. And so he gave us this phrase motivational check as a way you know if you were just having a bad day you know I, i'm oh just i just can't get through this I, i'm i'm really i'm really hurting today that you could yell that out motivational check and the rest of the class we were the 84th recruit class we would we would respond with a you know we would yell out 84 just to let the person know that hey you're not alone. You know, we're in this together. We're going to get through this together. I know you're hurting, but we're all hurting. So just hang in there and, and we'll get together. So when I was looking for, you know, a, a title for my blog, motivational check just seemed to be, you know, something that that I wanted to do and, 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 and made sense to me. And at the same time, I started a motivational speaking business. And that was really right about the time COVID was, was kicking off. And so somebody reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I know you can't really speak because nobody's doing anything either in person or virtually. Would you like to be on my my podcast? And I, I remember looking at him and I was like, sure. What's a podcast? I had absolutely no idea what, I, you know, I'm like, well, it's, you know, it's what we're doing. And I thought, well, OK, I guess. Yeah, sure. But I remember when I, I literally had posted notes all around the camera and, and they would ask a question and I would be like, well, the answer to that, and I would read yeah. the post note. I, I was terrible. I, I mean, I was absolutely lousy at it. I didn't have good stories. I, I didn't have anything that I could really, you know, I, I was feeling my way through that, but I got better at it. And I remember I was talking to my publisher and I said, you know, I listen to every podcast I've ever been on. 
And, you know, I want to be better. I want to have tighter stories. I want to have, have better sayings and things like that. And he was like, no, no, Terry, it's not about being good. It's just about not sucking. And I said, well, thanks for the title of my next <laughs> book. You know, just don't suck. But I said, no, that's not what it's about. I want to be a good guest so that the podcast host can have a good podcast. And that, so it, it's, you know, for me, it's just a different way of looking at it. It's just a different way of trying to be better so that, you know, when I'm on your podcast, it, it it comes off as a good podcast. It's like the I think it was number three or four in your ten success principles about failure. Make sure that you're failing. Yeah. And I'm a guest on shows as well, talking about sort of not necessarily motivational stuff, but other other stuff sort of within that within that realm. And if I listen back to my first podcast, much like you said, it's like wow. So. Uh, not not smooth not not eloquent you know you, you you're right. chopping stuff up a little bit and same with being a host on a show as well if I listen back to my first episode I'm like man how am I even a host but in order to be someone who's good you have to go through that development process and you have to start somewhere and I'm again stoic phrase is something along the lines of if you, if you want to be considered a master or if you wanted to get better at something you have to be content with being made to look stupid or foolish so to be the best podcaster host or podcast guest you have to be content with the fact that you're going to look absolutely shit at the earlier stage of that journey but that's what we have to do if we have those ambitions and we need to stay motivated and we have that growth-based mindset rather than a fixed-based mindset so where can people find this motivational blog and, and what sort of things do you talk about yeah, every day I put up a, a thought for the day. I mean, some of them are stoic thoughts. Some of them are, you know, business people. Some of them are sports people. I, I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought usually comes a question about maybe how you could apply that thought into your life. Uh, I have recommendations for books to read, videos to watch. My social media links are there. The number of uh, podcasts that I've been on are, are there as well. And you can also leave me a message. And that's all at motivational check, motivational checks, all one word dot com. That'll get you to me. That's perfect. So is there anything else that we've maybe not discussed that you want to ensure you get across to the listeners in terms of a message or somewhere they can reach out to you? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll end with one final story. I, I had a, a nurse recently ask me, you know, what it was like. I had my foot amputated in 2018 and I had my leg amputated in 2020. And she asked me, you know, what was it like to go through that? And and I've told her it certainly has not been easy. You know, I'm like I said, I'm six foot eight inches tall. So, you know, learning to walk again and falling is not a good thing. You know, you get hurt from, from falling when you're six foot eight. But what I told her was cancer can take all my physical faculties. But cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are. That's who everybody who's listening to us really is. We spend a lot of time, you know, on our bodies, on, you know, does my hair look good? Am I wearing the right clothes? You know, did I go to the gym today? And I'm not telling you not to do that. You absolutely, you know, should eat right and go to the gym and get enough rest and reduce stress in your life. You should do that. But I also think you ought to spend every day a little more time working on who you really are. And that's your heart, your mind, and your soul. I think if you do that at the end of your life, one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And two, I think you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart.
love it. I think there's a good metaphor there as well for for life in general. You know, if you're going through starting a business or whatever, and you lose all of your money, you lose your money, your assets, like the physical side that you mentioned, you lose the physical stuff. But what you've not lost is those softer skills, the ability to negotiate, the ability to 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 be disciplined, to be focused, the network that you've built up, the business skills. And that's a really good way, I think, to try and understand what you're saying is it's what you are inside, not those external factors that make the difference. It is. I, I remember the quote from Winston Churchill, you know, the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II. He said, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. So yeah. I, I, I love that quote. You know, yeah, you know, bad things happen. And, and you know what? You just need to keep moving forward and keep moving through that stuff. Yeah, it's not when when things are going well, sometimes that's when you, you not that you should, but that's when you think you think, right. Because life goes in roundabouts, doesn't it? When things are going bad, there's only one way up a lot of the time. Whereas when things are going good, it's like shit. We need to make sure that we we you know enjoy this as much as possible. Because right. um, I've been you know as as a, as everyone been subject to that in the past. Where when things are going great, you think you know you're top of the world, and then when things go badly, it's like well, as you said, you know if you're stuck in hell, why would you stop there? You've got to, you've got to keep going. Um, <laughs> I love I love that. I love that. Um, so yeah, well, th- thanks very much for being on the show. Anyway, Terry, I think you've brought some good insights. Love the uh, temperance balls and the motivational stuff that you're doing. If anyone wants to reach out to you, is the motivational um, um, side of things the best way to reach you, or is there any other way? Yeah, motivationalcheck.com is probably the easiest way. Everything is right there, and you know, you leave me a message, I'll absolutely get back to you. Excellent. Well, we'll leave the notes um, in in the podcast sort of description um, and hopefully people will reach out to you and get some insights. Great. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Me too, Terry.